Brilliant. What a story, eh? What an account. One of the best, surely. Good evening to you all. It's good to see you. We're going to unpack this passage. I invite you tonight to... There's quite a bit I want to say, probably more than I need to say. So just be listening in your heart to what it is the Lord might want to say to you, um, either through what I say or despite what I say, because the, the Lord is going to want to speak through this passage tonight. I have no doubt. Um, so let's just pray together as we approach uh, this time in the Scriptures. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would draw close to us now. Pray that you would speak to our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus, and speak through this wonderful account of you drawing near to those two disciples. Come and draw near to your people now, to us, even us here, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Brilliant. Can we have the uh, on the road again? Luke 24, 13 to 35. Thank you, Mig. That's awesome. Okay, so before I um, get into, before we get into this particular passage, I want to ask, do we have any creatures of habit here tonight? Anyone who would call themselves a creature of habit? Yeah, good man. There's some honesty over here. A little bit in the back, less so around here. (laughs) Um, Okay, anyone here... Uh, willing to share any of their habits or their routines. I'll, uh, I'll ask, anyone got a bedtime routine? Anyone got something they always do? Jenny, what, 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 what is it? That's brilliant. So you put the Bible on to listen to. Are you saying you never get to the end of it? You mean of the whole Bible? You mean you sit there for three weeks? Oh, well, I fall asleep. Yeah, I love that. But whatever the passage is of the day, the Bible in one year, the passage of the day, and you always fall asleep in the dark. That's really nice. That's a holy habit. That I like that. Um, I happen to know somebody here every Sunday evening likes to eat cheese and Hovis biscuits. There's a routine, but I won't tell you um, who it is. Don't worry about it, Ben. They don't know. They don't know they're never going to know. The secret's fine with me. Um, I love that. That's a cracking... That, that was not planned. It was not planned. I hate puns. Ian Tremaine isn't here, the king of puns. So yes, we can leave him out of this. Um, yeah, any other... Any quick uh, sharing of habits as we're getting to know one another better? Anyone? Rob, show it off here now. Every night, ten press-ups, he says. <laughs> I, um, I have to say, Rob, I, uh, I did do ten press-ups once. Uh, that's all I have to say. I did, did do ten press-ups once. Um, can't remember the last time I did one. Uh, okay, that's cool. Okay. So we've got all sorts of habits. Perhaps we've got habits for when we relax. Perhaps, you know, if I came and found you on a... Tuesday evening, I'd always find you sat in a particular chair reading a book or listening to the radio. Uh, We form habits all the time. Um, Many of them are harmless. I'm like, what is this? Come on. We're not having having heckling from Di Woosley. Come on, Di. What is this? Yes, that's more realistic, isn't it? 
<laughs> sleeping in a chair with the TV blaring. Yeah, that's a lovely thing. Um, do you know, many of our habits are, are harmless. In fact, some of them are very good. Um, but we also form habits when we're under stress. We form ways of coping, coping mechanisms, if you like. And some of them might be good. Some of them actually might be really quite unhelpful. I want to suggest that sometimes in these difficult times, we can default back and fall back to our worst uh, rather than to God's best for us. You remember last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we were talking about the power of Jesus' resurrection, about resurrection life, the brand new life that you and I are called to walk in as Jesus' followers, a life where things are made new, where things are transformed, the brokenness in our lives begins to be healed, a life full of hope and possibility because of Jesus' resurrection, victory. And the New Testament is really clear on this. We're not making this up. Paul, it's one of his favourite things to come back to. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, he says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. If you love Jesus, it's true of you. You've become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. This new resurrection life. Yet often we find ourselves falling back to the old familiar patterns of coping and behaviour which perhaps aren't from this new life in Christ at all. And in this wonderful account which we're going to look at now and many of us know really well, I think it's fair to say that The week the disciples had was not the week they were expecting. The death of Jesus was definitely unexpected and painful and frightening. It had been traumatic, shocking and sad for them. And I want to suggest that what we see here is two disciples defaulting back to some of their worst habits formed in their old lives long before they'd heard about Jesus. They're back on the old road, if you like, again. Yet in this account, it's Jesus himself who draws near to them And begins to teach them and us the life-changing differences between the old way of life that they once knew and this new life now that he is alive, now that he is resurrected. This is the first day of his resurrection. It's all brand new in the universe. I love that thought. Jesus is alive. The first day of his resurrection. And it's as if he's giving them and us a blueprint as to how different this new resurrection life is going to be compared to the old way of doing things. But it all starts, as I said, with the disciples digging up their old habits back on the old road again, if you like. The sadness, the disappointment of the last few days has led them back to their old coping habits. And we learn in this passage they're doing a spectacularly good job at getting it all wrong when it comes to coping with what's happened. And I want to suggest to you that they're walking in the wrong direction, they're looking in the wrong place, and they end up yelling at the wrong guy. It's a spectacular mess, really. Um, I may be being a bit harsh to them, but it's all in the text, I think, if you wrestle with it. I think it's there. So this account comes, let me look at the first one really briefly. The account comes... Straight after Luke's first resurrection account, where the women come back and say to the disciples and others gathered, the tomb's empty, we've seen the angels, he's alive. And then Peter and John go off to see 
or some of the company go off to sea and they come back and say, yes, it's true, the tomb is empty, but, but they didn't see him. You see, clearly this was no time to leave the fellowship. This is the very day that those first accounts have come in. They are confused still, they are sad, and now they are probably troubled by what's going on. And this potentially hugely significant time, what on earth have they considered more important back in Emmaus, seven odd miles away? You know, what did they need to attend to it? They left the oven on kind of thing. You know, I just, sorry guys, fascinating news. I've you know, just got to go and check the garden, make sure the tomatoes are doing okay. It's a strange one. What are they heading back for? Perhaps it was all too much for them and they wanted to return to normality. Perhaps they needed to process their thoughts and grief alone. Either way, they're walking in the wrong direction, away from the company and friendship and support that they needed at this time when they needed it most. They're also looking in the wrong place. We learn that they're searching for answers. We read that they're talking together But it says it again, it says, and they're talking about everything that that happened, but they're discussing this. And the Greek word literally means debating. They are digging deep with their conversation. What on earth has gone on? How could all this have happened in this way? But I want to suggest they're looking in the wrong place. They're looking to their own hearts and their own understanding. And all they were finding was their own sense of sadness and disappointment and loss and confusion. And it's at this point that Jesus draws alongside them can assume he walks with them for a little while, listening to them. Yet we're told that they're unable to recognise him. It's one of those mysteries. In fact, we're told that they are kept from recognising him. It doesn't say by or whom or by what. Potentially it's by God. He's up to something here. Or perhaps, just perhaps, it was their depths of sorrow and the attitude of their hearts that had blinded them to the reality that Jesus was with them. I wonder, either way, their physical blindness to recognising Jesus echoed the blindness in their hearts to the truth of what had taken place. So they're walking in the wrong direction, looking in the wrong place, and now they start yelling at the wrong guy. I love this, because along they walk with this stranger, listening in, and as they're still debating... Until he interrupts them, he says, so what is this you're talking about as you're walking along? It's wonderful. Jesus is really up to something. The pair stop dead in their tracks as they're walking. I don't know if you've ever walked with someone who's done this. It is quite shocking when someone literally stops dead. You're walking with them and you say something, they're so surprised, they literally go like this, and you end up going, oh, sorry, oh, you're back here. It's one of those moments where they have made Jesus take notice of how deeply sad and almost offended they are with his statement. They both put on this face to show their deep hurt, genuine, their sadness, possibly their disbelief at what he's just said. The one called Cleopas speaks up and in another language basically says, are you joking me? Are you kidding me? That's the equivalent of what he's saying. Are you the only visitor, Jerusalem, who does not know the things that have happened in these days? Just listen to that. The sense of indignance and rebuke in there as well. But never has a more indignant rebuke filled with sarcastic disbelief contained such deep irony, actually, has it? 
Are you the only one who doesn't know? The irony is that he's the only one who truly does know. Cleopas is here taking it out on this person he thinks knows nothing about what's happened and how he feels. Yet he's literally having a go at the risen Lord. Don't you know anything? Don't you get how we feel? What we've been through? What he's been through? And of course the answer is, actually yes I do. More than you could ever realise. More than you could ever know. In all his hurt and sadness, he's yelling at completely the wrong guy. Cleopas and his friend are back on the old road again. Wrong direction, wrong place. Yelling at the wrong guy. And most of all, they are blinded to the presence of Jesus with them. For them in this moment, it's as if the resurrection hadn't happened. This time of deep distress, they were living in the total weakness of their old life. They defaulted back to their worst, to their defaults. It was getting them nowhere. Yet, I just want to say, you and I can do the same, can't we? Can't we? You and I, old habits on the old road again. Because it's not always easy, is it, if we're honest? Scripture says we're in a constant battle not to slip back to the old ways. Paul says again on numerous occasions, is a recurring theme again on this new life, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Instead, be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. Don't live in the old life, but the new is Paul's passionate plea to us. He's passionate about it because he knows all too well that we too often revert back to the old ways and the old roads and the old habits. If we're honest, it's easy for us to go walking in the wrong direction at times of difficulty when we're hurt. Right? When we're despondent, when we're slighted, when we're upset, when we're struggling with our faith, it's too easy for us to walk away from church rather than deeper towards the fellowship and support that we so desperately need more than ever. If we're honest, we can often look for the answers in crises and struggles and difficulties in completely the wrong places. When we feel confused and restless and battered and bruised in our faith and understanding, we turn inwards sometimes to our own understanding, our own reasoning, our own thoughts, our own hurts and disappointments, and we drift further away rather than closer to the truth. And if we're honest, just like the disciples, I need to say no more. We can often end up yelling at the wrong guy, can't we? We can often end up thinking, God, why on earth would you let me go through this? Don't you know anything? Don't you care? And we can push away the one who does know and does care more than we could ever realise. I wonder, just think for a moment, what are your unhealthy coping mechanisms? What's the old road for you, the old habits that you can slip into that creep back in times of difficulty or stress or loneliness or disappointment or even boredom or restlessness or distraction? Is it negativity or denial? Hardness of heart? Is it isolation or overactivity? Is it deception, self-deception, hedonism, 
self-criticism, anger, addiction. We can all do it. Slip back into the old life. Just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's as if the resurrection never happened. But friends, the truth is the resurrection did happen. The historical, actual, physical tomb was empty because the historical, actual, physical Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And that changes everything. The huge meta-narrative of all history changes because of that one event. But so does your life and my life. Today and in the future because of that one historic moment. Our lives are different because of the resurrection. Yes, we may still be in a battle, but Jesus wanted those first disciples to know that there is a better way to walk. A new life to to live. A new life-giving habits to learn. And it all starts with a new friend on the journey. This resurrection life. They don't know it yet, but this friend's drawn alongside them to teach them that from now on things are going to be a bit different to this walking down the road in the wrong direction kind of life. The first thing we see is that the risen Christ, Jesus, draws near to these ordinary disciples. I mean, we don't even have a clue who they are. I love this. We only know one of their names as Cleopas. This is no James or John. This is no Peter the Rock. This is Cleopas and his mate. Who's ever heard of them? It might be the same Clopas whose wife is referenced in John 19, 25. Some think it might be. She was one of the women at the cross. How lovely if it is that Cleopas or Clopas because it could be that the person he's walking with is actually his wife. You ever thought of that? Maybe it's not two blokes. Maybe it's husband and wife walking along in despair together. Fascinating. Either way, we don't have a clue who they are but of course Jesus does and he knows them intimately and he loves them passionately and for some wonderful reason he chooses to reveal himself in Luke's account to them first before anyone else it's only been the vision of angels up to now and for some reason he reveals himself to this unassuming couple going in the wrong direction before he reveals himself to these main disciples typical Jesus right? Next, Jesus walks with them. And what I particularly love about this is that they're walking in the wrong direction. But he joins them on the walk anyway. Isn't that lovely? Jesus doesn't just join them when they're going in the right way. He's like, hmm, all right, guys? (laughs) Knowing full well this is not the way you're going to end up going. Trust me, give it an hour, you're going to be back that way. But we'll, we'll leave that until later. You know, he draws alongside them regardless. He's only just been resurrected. And he goes, yeah, these couple of not-knowners going in the wrong direction, talking nonsense. I'm going to go see them. I'm going to go turn up and see what they're up to. And having drawn near them and joined them on the journey, Jesus now does some much-needed heart surgery. He's not wanting to leave their hearts hardened. He's not wanting to leave them confused and saddened. That's not the resurrection life he's got planned for them. But before their hearts can be changed, Jesus knows that he first needs to reveal to them the state of their heart. They cannot step forward until they're aware of what's holding them back. 
So we asked them in typical Jesus style, what things have happened? It's quite clear that he, he knew jolly well what had happened and he also knew what they thought had happened. So it's clear that he's asked them this question for their sake only. He's not just making polite conversation. He's asking this to help them understand where their hearts are at. And they say, oh, the things about the mighty prophet Jesus and how our chief priests and leaders condemned him to death and crucified him and we had hoped that he'd been the one to redeem Israel. And we learn from their answer, their understanding limited as it was of who Jesus was, the prophet. Maybe they thought he was just a prophet who they had hoped would restore Israel. It's clear that any hope they had had was now gone. His death was the end of that for them. And they go on to speak of the women's testimony of the empty tomb and the angels that he was alive. But for them, the crucial fact was when the others went to see, they didn't see him. To them, it was just rumors and desperate optimism. Their hearts were heavy. Their faith was crushed. Their hope was gone. And now this was out in the open. Jesus sets to task teaching them the truth. Jesus is now the one who rebukes. Oh, foolish ones. Gosh, what a thing for the risen Christ to say to you. If you're going to script it, you might hope that wasn't going to be it, but I put my hand up to suggest it probably would be the first thing he'd say to me. Oh, foolish one. Have you not got it yet? Slow of heart to believe, he says, all the things that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It's in his genuine love and affection for them and desire for them to step out of this unbelief into the truth of the resurrection that Jesus hits them straight between the eyes. You're slow of heart, he says, to believe. This is more than just an intellectual issue. This is a heart issue that needed addressing. Jesus knew they needed a shock to the system to wake them back up. Don't you get it, he says. And then he teaches them and guides them by showing them the robustness and the wonder of God's plan throughout all of history about the Messiah. Starting with Moses and all the prophets, it says, he interprets for them all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. I mean, Catherine's not here, uh, Catherine Morgan. I will say life groups are great. But this is the Bible study we all really wish we were at, right? Can you imagine it? Jesus telling you from start to finish how he is revealed in scriptures all the way through. And I don't know which scriptures he used, and I haven't got time to go through all that I've found. But my goodness me, he was making it clear to them without any doubt that his death and resurrection has been at the heart of God's plan and at the heart of Scripture from the very beginning. From the promised seed, I'm going to rattle this. Take a deep breath. The promised seed of Eve that would crush the serpent's head in Genesis 3. The offspring of Abraham, bless the nations, Genesis 22. The one Moses prophesied God would raise up, Deuteronomy 18. 
He's the one who's the true Passover lamb of Exodus 12, the true scapegoat of the atoning sacrifice, Leviticus 16, the root of Jesse, Isaiah 11, the prince of peace, Isaiah 9, the Emmanuel born of a virgin, Isaiah 7. He's the promised good shepherd of Ezekiel 34, the son of man of Daniel 7, the ruler from Bethlehem, Micah 5. He's the Lord who David speaks of in Psalm 110, the father's son in Psalm 2, the stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone in Psalm 118. He is the one despised and rejected and familiar with suffering in Isaiah 53, the one forsaken, Psalm 22, and yet he's the one who was not abandoned to death but filled with resurrection joy in Psalm 16. He is the one abandoned by his closest friends, Psalm 41, mocked and abused, Isaiah 50, pierced for our transgressions, Isaiah 53 again, but who ascended into heaven, Psalm 68, and who swallowed up death and wipes away the tears of our faces, Isaiah 25. And there are so more, so many more I could have grabbed. That could have been a sermon in itself and we'd have been here an hour. I reckon it might be the best Bible study you could ever do. Just go searching for Jesus in the Old Testament. It's extraordinary. It's remarkable how many more I could have pulled out. But I tell you one thing, it's clear, isn't it? Jesus is saying to the disciples, look, this is the truth. Don't you go floundering around. Don't you go doubting it. God is in control. This had to happen and there is victory through the cross. And when we learn later on what Kath started our time together with, that as he was doing this, can you imagine their hearts started to burn? The passion, something was coming alive in them again. Faith was being reignited. They realised, wow, this is true. God's had this planned from the beginning. And the truth began to unshackle them from their old habits, their inward looking, their misunderstandings, their old ways, and started to release them into the joy and hope and wonder of the new life which was now available to them. And so now, having revealed their hearts and nurtured them back through teaching them the truth, they reach their final destination. And Jesus, we're told, goes to walk on, but hearts ablaze, Cleopas and his friend, potentially his wife, literally beg Jesus to stay with them. It was getting late, sure. Yes, beasts, robbers, difficult to actually physically see, sure. But there's no doubt it was because their hearts had become alive that they so desperately wanted this new friend to stay. Greek says they constrained him. They not only invited him, but they held him. They grasped his hand. They tugged at his skirts. They said he should not go. That's Spurgeon trying to get that bit through to us. You should not go. (laughs) Don't go anywhere. Can you blame them? My word, we need more of that. Who are you? What was that? More, please. You should not go. And so Jesus goes, okay then, I'm fine, yeah, yeah, I'll come in. And he comes in and he communes with them. He's intimate with them. It's beautiful. He sits, I don't know, he probably smiles around the table. And it says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognised him. And he disappeared from their sight. Perhaps it was the prayer he used as he was breaking the bread. Perhaps it was the manner in which he broke it. Perhaps it was for the first time they actually looked at his hands and saw the marks where the nails went 
through, whatever it was, finally, as he breaks the bread, they recognize his presence. It was their heart that kept them from seeing. It was their heart that Jesus revealed to them. It was their heart that Jesus rebuked. Stop it. And then it was their heart that Jesus ignited with the passion and reality and truth of the resurrection life. And finally, it was their heart that opened their vision to see that the Lord was with them. And now they can't contain it. They can't contain themselves. It is so life-changing for a human to realize he was with us. So they throw all human reason out the window, despite the darkness, despite the fact they've not put a morsel of bread in their mouth yet. They set off back to Jerusalem. We're out of here. He could have told them that at the beginning, that they were going to go back. But you know, he left them to find out themselves. Can you imagine that journey back? They must have flown, literally. If two humans have ever flown by their own enthusiasm and excitement, this was it. This was the moment. I would love to just see them. I would smile so much seeing them legging it back. Whoa, come on, let's do this. I bet it felt like a quarter of the distance. Puffing and panting and laughing and crying, they would have burst back into that room in Jerusalem. We've seen him. He is alive. And the people, they're like, we know, Peter's seen him. Chaos. Over the top joy. Nothing was going to stop them now. They had a new direction, a new purpose, a new understanding, a new heart attitude, a new hope. This was resurrection life. And they just had their first taste. Right at the point, that this resurrection life, right at the point where they realise that it's about having Jesus with them, helping them, doing all these things I've mentioned, he disappears. You see, this was just a taster for them of what it was going to be like to have him walk with them and talk with them and share with them in a new way. But then he had to leave. You see, they were in that in-between time, those 40 days, where he'd not yet ascended to the Father. But Jesus says... To them, and he says to us, you know, it's better that I go. How could it be better that you go, Jesus? And he makes it clear, because then I'm going to send my spirit. And he will be with you, and I will be with you always. I don't have to just pop up here and see you for a minute, and then walk back through the wall and disappear. I'm going to be with you always. That's the resurrection life they had a foretaste of in this account. And that's the the resurrection life that you and I need to recognise We live in. We need to embrace and enjoy to the fullest. I'm coming in to close now, but want to finish by you and me reflecting ourselves on this resurrection life that you and I have the privilege, the blessing of living in. And it starts by realising we have our friend with us on the journey. You see, just like those disciples, every day for me, every day for you, can be a road to Emmaus day. It's not the rare and the unusual that Jesus draws near and walks with us and reveals our hearts and teaches us the truth and communes with us in the most beautiful way. It's supposed to be the new norm for us. We no longer need to fall back on the old road, the old coping habits, Things are different now. Even in the most difficult situations, the most traumatic, unexpected moments in our lives, we have a friend with us calling us to experience resurrection life 
in all its fullness. I had a bit of an unexpected week this week. On Tuesday night, I was rushed into Musgrove. Bex took me at 11 o'clock at night with very, very severe chest pains. I could hardly breathe. My body had gone into shock and I was in agony. I was not expecting that on Tuesday night. And I was there all night until 7 a.m. in the morning. The pain medication took over an hour to work for the morphine to actually get me back out of the agony I was in. And I had tests and monitoring and all the stuff to make sure I was okay. At one, thought they thought, one point they thought my aorta was abnormal. I thought, here we go. But it's fine. They did a CT scan. Absolutely fine. What it was is my gallbladder playing up. I'm going to have an operation soon to have it removed. But it was, if I'm honest, a really traumatic experience. Some of you here will know what it's like when you actually think, hang on a minute, this is serious. And at one point I had that conversation with Bex, and I'm not saying this as a joke. But Bex, it's the conversation you don't want to have. Bex, if I do die now, I don't know what this is. They don't know what this is yet. Um, this is what I want my funeral to be like. I said to her, make it all about Jesus. She said, what, not all about you? I said, no, all about Jesus. It was quite an evening. But you know, that evening for me was just as much a part of resurrection life as any other night because I wasn't alone in that situation, not for a moment. It was just as much a road to Emmaus event for me. Sure, Bex was there and all the doctors, but so was my Lord and my friend. I was discharged at 7.30 in the morning. I got home around 8. And just as I got in, I got a text from Steve who sat there. He's humble. Um, Forgive me, Steve, for sharing this. But he's totally unaware of what I'd just been through. But chirpy as you like, he wrote, Good morning, my friend. Praying for you this morning. And heard the Lord say, Footprints. Know that he walks with you, next to you, and will carry you. I was like, there's some timing. (laughs) Isn't that just wonderful? Isn't it? It was the word of the Lord through Steve reminding me that he was with me through it all. And I knew that. And that's just it. We're to realise that Jesus now walks with us in and through everything. No matter which path or road we're on on that particular day. And hear that again. Even when we're on the wrong path and going the wrong way. Or the right way. Or the scary way. Or the boring way. Or the unexpected way. He's there right with me and you. And as he walks, he does heart surgery on you and me too, if we let him. He wants to draw out and reveal our hearts, the stuff that's holding us back. So often we find ourselves upset and emotional, reacting to something. And just like the disciples, we need to realise that what we really, we need to realise what we really believe is going on here. We need not to bundle it up or force it down or do a yeah, yeah, I'm fine kind of thing. We need to ask ourselves and let Jesus draw out of us, why am I so upset here? Why am I struggling? What am I afraid of? And these questions take effort. But if we let him, Jesus is going to want to do that in your life and my life because this is the form of discipleship he modelled all the time. Why do you say that, he would say? What do you want me to do? Why do you call me good? What's happened? As we walk in resurrection life, Jesus is going to want to disciple us every step of the way. And it begins by him revealing our hearts. And then he'll want to draw us back into the truth of his word. Often we end up believing all sorts of nonsense that we've come up with. And he's going to want to challenge that. And yes, sometimes, brothers and sisters, it means he's going to want to rebuke us. And that's okay. 
revealing our hearts, teaching us his truth. Scripture says that scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realise what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us what to do. It teaches us to do what is right, 2 Timothy 3.16. When I was in that hospital bed, I could have come up with all sorts of opinions on what was going on. God's abandoned me. This is his punishment. He doesn't care. But what's the truth of Scripture? I'm loved. That's the truth. He's the Lord. That's the truth. Whatever happens, I'm going to be with him. That's the truth. I'm safe, no matter what. If I live or die, I'm safe. I'm in his hands. That's the truth. This is resurrection life, realising he's walking with us, allowing him to break down our old, stubborn coping mechanisms, rebuke the nonsense we so often believe, and showing us again the truth of God's word in every situation. And I'll finish with this. Of course, perhaps the most special part of resurrection life is that he's longing for intimacy with us. He's just waiting for that invitation You see, at any time, he's ready to draw in close in a special way, to eat with us, to drink with us, if you like. But only if we invite him. Remember, he was going to walk on by? But those disciples practically begged him to come in. You must not go. Come in and be with us. And of course he did. And I want you to hear this tonight, because we often get confused in our theology here, I think. There is a difference between presence and intimacy presence is always the case Jesus is always with us but we can be tuned out to him our hearts can be hardened to him intimacy is when our hearts are softened our spirit becomes aware of his spirit within us and him drawing close we're focused on him and we invite him to draw near and it's why even though the spirit is always here when we gather sometimes we invite the spirit to come Of course the Spirit's already here. Jesus is here by his Spirit. But we say, come, Jesus, come Holy Spirit, because we're reflecting the invitation of our hearts. We're saying, you are welcome here. Come in. Come and eat with me. Come and be my friend. I'm listening, Lord. I'm open. And you know, he never walks on by. He never goes, not today. He says, yeah, I'm here. Let's eat together. Friends, I'm finished. But I want to ask, are you on that old road again? Are you on it right now? Is it time to come back and realise the resurrection life that you are privileged to be able to lead? Do you need to come back to the truth, back to intimacy with Jesus, back to wonder at this life we are now able to lead with our friend by our side? Perhaps there's a rebuke you need to hear tonight. Stop that old coping habit. Stop believing that lie. Come and know the truth again. That if you love him, he is with you and he is wanting to bless your heart and come close in love and friendship because this is the resurrection life he won for us and this is the resurrection life he calls us to walk in. So let's walk in it together. Let's just pray, shall we? Lord, thank you for your word. It is so rich. It is so wonderful. And it speaks to our hearts. Lord, speak to each one of us, I pray tonight, by your word. Not my words, by your word. 
Come and draw each one of us in again into truth that you are with us, that you love us, that we're in your hands. All our days are in your hands and we can trust you. Come and help us to stop holding on to old habits that we need to drop, that come from the old life. Come and teach us new habits of inviting you in close. Come and speak to your people tonight, Lord. Come and change us. For we are so thankful to you for your victory on that cross and the life that we now have with you as our friend every step of the way. Bless your name, Jesus. Bless your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Just take a moment as the band come back up. We're going to finish our time by singing together.